There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. War must be, while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, or the arrow for its swiftness, or the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. J.R.R. Tolkien Hello and welcome to the When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One, episode 20.5, Over Before Christmas. I hope you guys have been enjoying the diplomacy as of late, but I don't want you to think that just because the war is on now, I'll stop covering diplomacy. Remember, this is when diplomacy fails. We do things differently here. If there are diplomatic negotiations, international relations, or ridiculous side notes, then I will find them. This is not a military history of World War I. I just want to clarify that. I will be covering the major battles and turning points out of a begrudged sense of necessity, but when diplomacy fails as niche, will still be its focus on the points you may not have been so totally aware of, and perhaps you will then learn something new, while also enjoying this hour we have together. And that will remain true for the rest of these specials. You're not going to hear a battle-by-battle, day-by-day, general-by-general account of what's what, so spread the word if you know someone stopped listening because they think I'm going to get all boring and technical, since that's something I hope to never be. Okay, with that bit of housekeeping out of the way, I will now take you to the year 1914. It has been a goal of mine to go at least some way into explaining the causes of World War I, but something like that is impossible to do without stepping back a bit and putting the unfolding situation in Europe to the side for a while. Don't worry, we'll have plenty of time for covering Europe in the latter part of the episode. For now though, I'd like to clear up this mess that Europe has apparently stumbled into, and it's not an easy mess to explain. You have been following the narrative, hopefully, since episode 20.1, but if you, like me, still can't come to terms with the outbreak of war, then let's look at a few things. I'm not going to give you one reason for World War I, instead I'm going to give you seven. Part-time historians, students, and perhaps even academics, if this can be of help, since it's a fairly pervasive question in any kind of world history or international history course, I hope you'll notice the acronym I developed. Allow me to introduce you to SIPPING. Now, for those of you listening to this for fun and likely signed to yourself right now and wondering at my need to use acronyms for everything, don't worry, it hopefully won't get in the way too much. If someone asks you the causes for World War One, you would hopefully be able to say, Oh, I remember from Zach's When Diplomacy Fails podcast that he said it came down to sipping. S for strategic concerns, 
I for individuals, P for populations, P again for peace, I for ideology, N for nationalism, and finally G for the glorification of war. Sipping. Let's look at the first of these, the strategic concerns of the central powers right now. Germany and Austria-Hungary were thoroughly convinced of the need to strike in 1914. They convinced themselves of that need. High up in German circles, the threat was believed to come from Russia, who would be a far more dangerous enemy of Germany in three or four years' time than at the moment when their allies' heir had been assassinated. Austria's statesmen also held a degree of concern for possible future Russian growth, but their primary concern was with Serbia. Serbia had been a concrete enemy of Austria for the better part of the early 20th century. Up until 1914, Serbia had grown stronger and more influential, as we saw in the First and Second Balkan Wars, which also had the knock-on effects of making Russia stronger as its ally, and Bulgaria weaker as its neighbour. If Austria allowed Serbia to grow, to acquire a port on the Adriatic Sea, to regain its Serb minority within Austria, to take the Bosnian nationals into their fold, then Austria's position would be severely threatened. Austria had for years housed such a wide-ranging number of nationalities that one shudders to think at the logistical problems involved in manning its institutions, staffing the armies and preventing the empire's collapse. But Austria remained intact up to 1914. In many ways the issues Serbia posed to Austria over her strategic problems overlapped with the nationalistic idea she suggested to her. But the fact that Serbia needed to be removed from the Balkans before it grew any more powerful was an idea prevalent not just in Austrian, but also German circles, who we saw last time were concerned with how Serbia threatened to complicate the Schlieffen Plan. Getting Serbia out of the way so that the Schlieffen Plan would run smoothly was only part of the plan for Germany. The rest revolved around Russia and anticipating her increasing growth by defeating her early, before she could have a chance to properly and effectively reform and rearm. Under this mindset, the almost feverish need to strike permeated all Austro-German plans, and the result was that this alliance was far more willing to act belligerently before, as it was feared, the whole situation became impossible. For these reasons, strategic concerns make up the S in the acronym SIPPING. Now for the first I, which stands for INDIVIDUALS. Blaming any one individual for the outbreak of World War I is a truly impossible task. We can always point to people in high places who changed their country's course, or who failed to halt that course as a change by itself. But to blame one single person for the outbreak of a war that cost at least 10 million military lives is sure to spark a load of historical posturing and debate. And on that note, I'd like to nominate the one individual who I feel is responsible, along with all the other elements of sipping, for the First World War, and who, as one single man, contributed more to the march towards war than any other individual. His name is Turpitz. We followed the career of Turpitz throughout the early episodes, where we looked at his naval career, his befriending of the Kaiser, and his revolutionary new ideas, but I don't think I ever actually stated how much resentment and hatred I hold for the man. That might sound a bit harsh, and from an academic historical perspective ethically wrong, but just hear me out. Let's remember what Turpitz did. His intelligent and strategic mind led to his rising through the German naval ranks, where he began to butt heads with his more conservative, read, sensible, superiors, who believed that the plans Turpitz had for building a German navy that would rival Britain's were insane, and would never be successful in either of its goals. So Turpitz befriended the Kaiser, who had always admired the British navy and wanted one of his own so badly, that he was willing to provoke rivalry with his grandmother's state in order to get it. 
After returning from the Far East, Turbots was placed in a high enough position in the German Admiralty to bring his plans to a logical conclusion, without butting any more heads, and all the while supported, protected, and enthusiastically followed by Kaiser Wilhelm II. One could argue that the two were responsible for the naval arms race and Anglo-German rivalry that followed, and to an extent Wilhelm II can share some of the blame. But imagine this. Imagine if Tirpitz never existed. Could Wilhelm have single-handedly persuaded his admirals of the need for an increased German navy? I for one doubt it. Once Tirpitz's first few naval bills were passed in 1898 and 1900, he was well on his way to antagonising Britain out of a lucrative friendship. That's another point about Tirpitz, his dramatic misunderstanding of the British character. Tirpitz believed he could scare Britain into an alliance favourable to Germany, on the grounds that Germany, with its then powerful navy, would have posed such a threat to British naval supremacy that even if Britain had won, the only option Britain would have had was friendship. We know of course that this had the opposite effect. Britain felt far more threatened and bullied than it did privileged to have Germany as a so-called friend, and so began to build more ships and create new naval technology rather than allow Tirpitz's tactics to succeed. By 1914, Germany's fleet was 40% the size of Britain's. It was the second largest in the world, but besides that impressive statistic, the years of manpower, money and other resources seemed like a complete waste, especially when one considers the relatively tiny impact ships had on the war, at least in terms of naval exchanges. Not only did Tirpitz's policies alienate Britain on a diplomatic level, pushing her further into the arms of France and eventually Russia, but everything that was put into Tirpitz's naval building, all his bills and naval strategy, proved to be a total waste. Waste that could have been replaced instead by increases made to the German army, and a recognition of the fact that Germany would never be a great naval power. Annika Mumbauer, in her article The First World War, Inevitable, Avoidable, Improbable or Desirable, Recent Interpretations on War Guilt and the War's Origins, notes the character and pressures facing the top authorities in Germany, and reasons whether their existence is given as much importance as they deserve. Quote, Moreover, the role of Kaiser Wilhelm II has frequently been highlighted as crucial to the developments of the pre-war years. Might a different monarch have pursued a less belligerent foreign policy? If the German chief of staff, the younger Moltke, had felt less need to prove his military skills to his largely critical entourage and live up to the great name he had inherited, would the crisis of 1914 have had a different outcome? As David Stevenson points out in his book Cataclysm, the European peace might have been a house of cards, but someone had to topple it. End quote. It is obviously a very multi-layered idea but one which I feel holds enough weight to justify individuals holding the I in sipping. Notice how I didn't simply put forward a T for Tirpitz though. This is because, in case you were unconvinced by my argument, you could try promoting an individual of your own as a primary mover and shaker behind World War I. Or even a small number of individuals. If you come up with something different to my idea, then by all means, let me know. We move on to P now, and this stands for Population. The population of Europe in 1914 had swollen to a level of unprecedented proportions. Never before had the European nations bristled with such large numbers of people under their rule, and for that reason armies began to increase in size too. Once the armies increased in size, as I explained last time, the very nature of European diplomacy changed, since those with the largest armies were far less willing to back down in the face of international pressure and those who believed they could defeat other powers militarily felt less inclined to compromise for the sake of peace. 
Henry Kissinger, in his book Diplomacy, notes the problem that this newfound stature brought for Germany on the world stage. Quote, The reason German statesmen were obsessed with naked power was that, in contrast to other nation-states, Germany did not possess any integrating philosophical framework. Bullying tactics seemed to Germany's leaders the best way to bring home to their neighbours the limits of their own strength and, presumably, the benefits of Germany's friendship. End quote. For this reason, I uphold P for populations as a key element of explaining the First World War. Now on to the other P, peace. Some of you may be scratching your heads at this point. Why would I be talking about peace when the Balkan Wars, Ottoman Wars, Boer Wars, Russo-Japanese Wars and all others have been so thoroughly referenced in these podcasts? Well, that is a good point which I'll come back to in a bit, but first let me explain what I mean when I make reference to the long peace that Europe has endured. I refer, of course, to a worldwide war, the likes of which hadn't been seen in the world since Napoleon's France in the early 1800s. The smaller wars in between 1815 to 1914, such as the Crimean, Franco-Prussian or Russo-Turkish, were of course wars, but they did not represent a fundamental altering of the world order, or a dramatic change in global policy. Yes, they had great impacts, but Europe after the Crimea, or the Franco-Prussian or Russo-Turkish war, did not feel like it had been through another Napoleon. It did not see total war, or bear witness to the downfall of a nation's dreams. They were not world wars, even though the impact of each would have been felt throughout the world. Get it? From this line of thinking, then, it is easier to explain why the European powers in 1914 appeared so eager to suffer and inflict death and devastation on one another on an unimaginable scale. A world war had not existed in so long, nobody remembered how bad they truly were. As simple as that sounds, it does make sense. It was Robert E. Lee, after all, that famous Confederate general of the American Civil War, who had said, It is good war is so horrible, lest we grow too fond of it. The world had not recoiled from the idea of war, because years of world peace had lulled Europe into the dangerous mentality that made war appealing. Europe had grown fond of it, even though they didn't really know what modern world war was. As I said before, wars had been ongoing, in the Balkans, against the Ottomans, and between the Russians and Japanese. So, in another vein of the argument, but still in line with the point of the long peace, one could point to small-scale wars appearing almost commonplace in Europe by 1914. If those wars had not broken the world peace set in place since 1815, there was no reason to believe that when Austria sent the declaration of war to Serbia on July 28, 1914, that war across the world would erupt. It probably wouldn't, had two factors not existed. One, that Germany and Austria genuinely felt they needed to go to war to preserve their security, and two, war on a worldwide scale had been absent from the continent for so long that it seemed all had forgotten to conduct themselves when war was so clearly on the international horizon. Additionally, as another factor adding to the misunderstanding of the situation was the now infamous assertion, which gives its namesake to this podcast, that the war would be a quick one and will be over by Christmas. Technology, administration and logistics seem to suggest a form of war that would be short and sweet, not unlike the 1870 Franco-Prussian conflict, and this view is touched on by James Joll in his book Origins of the First World War. Quote, the most persistent assumption underlying the decisions of July 1914 was the illusion that war would be short. The thinking behind this was relatively simple. Modern methods of transportation and communication created unprecedented opportunities for speed and mobility in attack. 
This lesson had been learned in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. The war plans of the great powers in 1914 hinged on railway timetables and the rapid deployment of men in the field. End quote. Without veterans to remind one of the unpredictable nature of war, or the futility of it as a form of state policy, 1914 saw a Europe blinded by years of world peace and determined to put what they had to the test. For these reasons, I uphold P for Peace as an element of sipping and a key contribution towards World War I. The next element, I for ideology, is a little harder to explain. Ideology can mean a lot of things. It can mean the new attitude the Austro-German partnership displayed towards the world, with its huge armies, intricate military plans, and disenchantment with the peace. Or it could refer to the ideas that presented both empires in a state of peril, with severe threats coming from their main rivals, Serbia to Austria and Russia to Germany within the world. How were these ideas created? For example, why did the attitude of Germany change from one of alliance to antagonism towards Russia from 1874 to 1914? As with all questions of this magnitude, it is impossible to answer that with a single solid answer, but ideology plays a big part. The sense of urgency, the fear that their enemies would try to destroy them if they did not act first, are key symptoms of a sick international order that seemed to be veering unchallenged towards war. War was revered as the armies grew, war was believed to be the Austro-German solution to the surrounded nature of their existence, compounded by aggressive and imperialistic foreign policies on behalf of both. I've often rhetorically asked the question of why nobody tried to stop the move towards war in 1914. Quite simply, the Austro-German camp wanted war in summer of 1914 more than ever before, but the answer goes much deeper than that. It is a fundamental problem within Europe, within its interstate dealings that can explain why force was held above diplomacy, why pride was more important than peace, why a naval race was pursued before disarming. I've only scratched the surface, but I hope you understand what I'm getting at here. Europe was going to war in 1914 because there was something very wrong with the way its statesmen and its states viewed war and peace. Ideology is generally a convenient and satisfactory explanation for World War II, but the part played by ideology in 1914 should not be underestimated. Militaristic, imperialistic, paranoid, urgent and antagonistic ideologies permeated every orifice of the Austro-German planning, and led them to make war out of the belief that war was a necessity, not the most horrendous thing a state could do. For these reasons, I am upholding I for ideology as an element of sipping, and as a crucial contributor towards World War I. Now allow me to explain N for nationalism. Europe itself was awash with nationalities and peoples that did not ethically identify with their home country. Russia, Germany and Austria all housed considerable minorities within their borders. And the fear of the danger that those minorities could pose led one power, Austria, to centre its entire foreign policy on it. As we saw in the last episode, Franz Ferdinand had possessed grand plans for ensuring Austria's empire lived on in a new form. But with his death came the confirmation that nothing domestically, was going to change for the country's ethnic peoples. Franz Joseph, the incumbent emperor, had no interest in paving the way for the kind of change his son had imagined, and so the plans for reform and tolerance were replaced by the familiar policies of repression and force. However, for this policy to be effective, Joseph knew that the minorities within the empire, who collectively made up the majority, had to remain in awe of Austria's ultimate power, 
and it was kind of hard to do that when a nationalistic power, Serbia, existed in prosperity on its borders. Serbia represented proof that an ethnic people could rule themselves effectively without the need for an empire over them. This promised a certain future for Austria's Poles, Italians, Ukrainians, Czechs, Slovaks, Bosnians and others who could dream of an independence in Europe based on their ethnic identity, free from empire and crucially without Austrian hegemony. The need to rid the Balkans of Serbia followed the logic that, without Serbia to the south, those same chafing minorities within Austria would be willing to simply forget their dreams of self-rule and move on or at least be intimidated enough by Austria's power to move on, especially if Serbia lost so catastrophically and Austria won so convincingly that it put the fear of the Habsburg state back into them. This was perhaps a simple-minded view of how their minorities worked, but as we'll see in future episodes, Franz Ferdinand had been right to fear the dissolution of his empire. Austria had hoped that by utilising a successful war, Serbia would be cut out and the Balkans would be theirs for the taking but nationalism had placed the Balkans in the position that they were in 1914. The unstable, famously acidic nature of the Balkans was created by the existence of so many identifiable minorities within such a closed space. And once their shouting became too loud for a suppressing empire to bear, such as the Ottomans, the Balkans were independent and free to strike out alone, prospects which terrified the Austrian statesmen, who believed the collapse of their state was imminent if they did not launch a preemptive strike of some kind soon. Anyone within Austria-Hungary that was not Austrian or Hungarian would have been encouraged by the news that the Balkan states had broken free from Ottoman rule, had established nation-states of their own, and were actually doing quite a good job. Subsequent wars in the Balkans brought home the fact that those Balkan states liked to act independently, and that they did not need an Austrian or an Ottoman to tell them what to do. A fact that contrasted sharply with the Austrian Habsburg mentality of upholding the ethnically Germanic peoples as superior since the times of the Holy Roman Empire. For these reasons, I uphold N for nationalism as a key element of sipping, and a vital part of World War I. Now, for the final part of sipping, glory or the glorification of war. Glorifying war was not an old idea, that much is obvious, but it is probably because it is such an old idea that we cannot imagine any country actually buying into the illusion today. The problem was, people like you and me today are living with the consequences of World War, the results of what these men set in motion. Veterans from World War II are still alive today, and, although their number is by no means overwhelmingly influential, the war itself is fresh enough in our minds, either through education or interest, that we naturally abhor the kind of attitudes towards war that were bandied around during this time. Our forefathers in 1914 had no such institutions informing them of war's dark side. For Europe in 1914, war almost appeared to be the medicine, something that could heal the mess in the Balkans, and straighten out international aggression and imperialism. War was a great, enticing, almost beautiful thing for many in Europe. One need only look at the explosion in patriotism in all countries once the call came for volunteers to see the light war was viewed in at the time. Granted, that sort of statement does not account for those that attempted to dodge the system in 1914, but the fact remains that Europe's populations felt willing to fight one another in a gentleman's war, an adventure and a chance to see the world while nobly serving one's country. But you were not going to die. Young men did not die, surely. 
This idea that war was clean, that to die for one's country was an honour but wasn't going to happen to you or your dad or your best friend, was an illusion shattered by four long years of agony, born out of the lies first spouted and later believed by European statesmen, that war really wasn't all that bad and it was such a glorious and fantastic thing after all. Blinded by these ideas, Europe committed itself to a horrendous tragedy. Churchill said it appeared as though Europe wished to suffer. But we must remember, European statesmen were not consumed by the realities of war in 1914. They did not imagine the horrors of the trenches or the stale, futile nature of muddy, wet and constant attrition. All that Europe saw was the opportunity for glory, to right the wrongs of years of peace by force of arms. It's not like people wanted to die in huge numbers in a random field in Flanders. We must remember that war appealed to so many because so many believed that war was glorious, while so few understood the truth. For these reasons, I uphold G for glorification of war as the final element of sipping and an integral part of the First World War. So there you have it, my reasoning for the outbreak of the First World War, sipping. Strategic concerns, individuals, population, peace for too long, ideology, nationalism, and the glorification of war. See how great acronyms are? Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into another question that is frequently bandied about. Was World War One inevitable? You probably just answered that question in your head without even realising, and I don't want to dwell on this too much because I want to get into the events that occurred after the July crisis, but I will present a few facts to you that you can hold on to until later, when we cover this question in more detail, probably with Sean. So let's look at the facts. If someone asks you, was the First World War inevitable all along, or was it simply the result of an assassination, here's what you could say. First, the issues Germany was facing in terms of fearing Russian growth within a few years were not going anywhere, and neither was the desire to launch a preemptive war against Russia to stop her acquiring the kind of power German statesmen feared. So that's one angle on it. Second, on the other hand, if Franz Ferdinand hadn't been assassinated, then he would have implemented his plans for the United States of Austria, which we examined in previous episodes, so this would have surely pacified the Balkans, and maybe even the Austro-Russian rivalry in the process. There's another angle for you. Third, on a sort of neutral position, was the very real build-up across Europe of armies, navies, populations, resources, wealth, power, and the strong desire to put these acquisitions to the test. Could Europe have remained at peace, or was World War I just a major international incident away? That's really for you to decide. If Europe had spent all this time acquiring power, what would it use that power for? Would it simply allow it to drain away, gradually by means of negotiation? Or would no single power be willing to trust the other enough to make itself vulnerable enough for a peaceful, disarmed diplomacy to properly take place? I'll let you be the judge, and we'll come back to this once I get Sean on here. Now, I'd like to take you to the opening days of World War I. The date is about the middle of August of 1914, and Europe is finally at war. We have seen before how Germany was a slave to the strategic plan that had been in development since the early years of the 20th century, the Schlieffen Plan. With it, Germany hoped to first defeat and probably subjugate France, and then move east to defeat and impose sanctions on Russia. Nothing else was as important in German strategic minds as this plan. Everything had been planned around it for the years leading up to war before, 
As train timetables, the average marching speed of a soldier, the mobilization speed of Russia, and the expected time it would take Germany to defeat France were all calculated. Speed was critical from the get-go. Germany had to defeat France before Russia could bring its power to bear against her in the east. In short, Germany was trying to make the two-front war a one-front war at a time, and it very nearly succeeded. By invading France through Belgium, it was hoped little resistance would be encountered, and that Germany could make quickly for Paris. However, as we saw in the last episode, this invasion of a neutral enabled Britain to declare war on Germany, since the justification had finally been found that Britain needed. This is covered by James Joll. Quote, the British Empire was in no immediate danger. Britain did not go to war in order to crush the German fleet, but to save France. The naval race had helped to embitter the British public against Germany, to turn their animosity away from the traditional enemies, France and Russia, and the German invasion of Belgium was instrumental in confirming the British in the righteousness of their cause. The British were nevertheless drawn reluctantly into the war in August 1914, because they believed that a victorious Germany would inevitably dominate the country. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Continent. End quote. Britain, France, and Russia were now locked in a struggle against the Austro-German alliance that held most of Central Europe. Italy remained neutral, a predictable but still irritating outcome for most central power statesmen. Italian justification centered on the fact that the Triple Alliance had been a defensive, not offensive alliance, and that by declaring war on Russia and France, Germany and Austria had violated its terms, and Italy was no longer obliged to partake in the alliance any longer. Just like that, over 30 years of Triple Alliance negotiations were cast out, and Austria suddenly didn't feel so safe. 
For Germany, Italy's failure to enter into the war against France detracted little from the sheer force of arms she was sending towards the country. How much force, you may ask? Well, the book, War in the Western Front, compiled and edited by Gary Sheffield, contains numerous authors' accounts of various angles of World War I. One of these authors, Dr. Stephen Bull, notes the numbers involved at the beginning of the war. Quote, how many fighting men a nation could field, and how quickly they could mobilise, were vital factors in 1914. France, with a roughly static population of 39 million, had a standing army of 700,000. This could be increased to 1,150,000. Reserves and territorials would bring the total to 4,200,000. But to maintain such a high proportion of our manpower under arms for anything but a short period would be very difficult. The Germans had 800,000 men before the war, but a larger proportion and swift mobilisation over good rail links could put more than 5 million men into the field, with scope for further increases. Austria's pre-war strength was only 415,000, but it could be much expanded, though she was hampered not only by the nature of her army, but the enmity of her smaller Serb neighbour and her uncertain relations with Italy. By contrast with Austria, Russia's potential strength was almost limitless yet her peacetime army numbered 1,300,000, and the time she was expected to need before she could bring her steamroller into action was of critical concern to her planners. Britain had never fielded a mass army, and her immediate contribution would be less significant than that of Belgium. The fighting strength of the BEF in August 1914 would be less than 90,000 men. In a longer war, it remained to be seen whether her industry, financial resources and empire could be translated into an armed strength comparable with that of the continental powers. End quote. These numbers border on the unbelievable, but it also helps to explain why Europe was bristling with belligerent attitudes and the desire to use force, while also giving some justification to the belief that the war would be over in such a short amount of time. Because, how could armies that large possibly exist for such a long time in their maximum, insanely expensive capacity without bankrupting the countries in question? The reasons that have been circulated regarding the nature of the coming war being short and sharp centred on the armies, what those armies would do, i.e. travel by railway in rapid time, thereby making battles occur quicker, and how much those armies would cost, i.e. a whole load. Nobody believed that war would last over four years because soldiers would be getting to the battlefield faster than ever before, and because the budget of a nation simply could not support a long war in the modern era. However, economists failed to comprehend the lengths countries will go, the debts nations will incur for the sake of winning a total war. The world was going to look very different by the time the world was at peace again. But in August 1914, all that concerned Germany, who was at that time the primary force behind the war's direction, was the Slyphon plan. As Dr. Stephen Bull recounts, quote, Russia was a vast and unpredictable battlefield. With her primitive infrastructure, she also seemed likely to be slow to mobilise. France appeared to offer the greatest threat, as the best able to mobilise quickly. It was therefore against France that Germany would throw the bulk of her force, seven armies, committed to a vast concentric wheeling movement, or right hook, from the northeast, which would ignore Belgian neutrality to push west and then south around Paris, repeating the glories of 1870. The daring part was the risk in leaving just one German army, the 8th, to face Russia in the east. End quote. However, Belgium did not simply roll over as the German planning had anticipated. 
German soldiers spent crucial days being repelled by her manned forts, and wasted precious lives in hopeless charges against her walls. It wasn't until August 16th that the Germans felt confident enough to move on from the Belgian forts, but by then valuable time had been bought for the Allies, and what German planners had anticipated to take only a few days had instead taken two whole weeks. The need to speed up the process was further emphasised, and the German High Command was beside itself as it realised it had miscalculated. These subsequent exchanges are known as the Battle of the Frontiers by military historians and lead directly to the key event of the First World War, the Battle of the Marne. You may also have heard of it as the Miracle of the Marne, but may be unaware of its implications. So before we launch right into it, I feel we have to set the scene a little. You may even see a mind map or two pop up, so please bear with me. To understand the significance of the Battle of the Marne and to properly follow why everyone is where they are, one must look at the preceding days before the Battle of the Marne broke out, which was officially dated as beginning on the 5th of September and lasting till the 12th. On the 9th of August, British troops had set sail for France, and the vital time Germany spent trying to subdue Belgium was used to great effect by both Britain and France, as Britain moved its BEF, or British Expeditionary Force, into position, and the Anglo-French General Staff agreed on a solid plan of defence. For the French further down the line though, an assault on Alsace-Lorraine would prove of critical importance, as it was perhaps the most direct assault brought against Germany, even if it did play into German planners' hands. As per the Schleifen plan, Alsace-Lorraine was meant to be the weaker area, designed to draw much French forces in, as the French general staff scrambled to reacquire their former provinces. When these forces had been sucked into Alsace-Lorraine, the German goal would be to destroy them from a safe distance, after encircling and cutting them off from the main French force. Pretty much everyone's goal at this stage was to encircle their enemy, and thus everyone moved fast to achieve this. World War I is well known for its trench warfare, and trust me we'll be seeing a lot of that later, but for the first two months of the war everyone massed their forces and tried to send as much men into the fray as possible, creating a rapid mobile war. For France, this was because their defence depended on it, for Germany, because the Schleifen plan depended on it, and for Britain, because they needed to prevent a collapse of France similar to 1870. The Battle of the Frontiers contained numerous small-scale skirmishes, and is characterised by an Allied retreat in the face of the mass of Germany's army. Seven-eighths of Germany's entire armed force was being sent towards France. To answer this force was a small but highly professional force of 90,000 British soldiers. The best-trained army in 1914, due to their status as professional, not conscripted soldiers, and due to their ability to lay down devastating amounts of rapid fire, after years of training in the art of rapid-fire drills. France mobilised to its strategic points east of Paris, such as canals or rivers or bridges over such features, in anticipation for the German arm to strike out of Belgium, while German soldiers pressed relentlessly on into the most notable of the battles within the Battle of the Frontiers, the Battle of Mons. This was the first proper engagement between British and German soldiers, but it also represented the communication failure that was to characterise the muddled Anglo-French operations for the next few weeks. On August 23rd, Britain's British Expeditionary Force waited at the canal crossings in between the towns of Mons and Charleroi, which lay along the mons Cand Canal. At the behest of the commander of the French 5th Army, General Charles Landrizac, 
The BEF, under the command of Sir John French, just to complicate things a bit, was to hold the left flank of the French 5th Army for 24 hours so that they would not be cut off. Without the support of the BEF, Lonrezac worried that his army, who had just engaged in the fiercely contested Battle of Charleroi that day on the 22nd, would be surrounded once the expected German advance on their left flank emerged. The easiest way to imagine this is, of course, with a mind map. Imagine an upside-down V, and that the two towns of Mons and Charleroi form the two end points of the letter. That letter V is the canal, over which the four bridges span, which of course are covered by British troops to the left crossings, and French troops to the right crossings. Martin Marix Evans, in his book Battles of World War I, describes the scene, which, conveniently, fits into my mind map quite well. So picture this, quote, The presence of the British must have been a considerable shock for the Germans. Their intelligence suggested that the most recent location of the advance guard of the BEF was, perhaps, at Tournai, towards Lille, and that they were still landing at Belgium and French ports. In fact, they had spent 10 days in France and crossed into Belgium on the 21st of August. They had come up at the Montscon Canal on the evening of the 22nd of August, and, instead of marching on as originally planned, were ordered to dig in. On the left of the BEF line, which centred on the town of Mons, was 2nd Corps under Sir General Horace Smith Dorian, and on the right of the line was 1st Corps under Lieutenant General Sir Douglas Haig. Each had two divisions comprising of three brigades of infantry, with mounted troops, artillery and engineers. In addition, the BEF had the Cavalry Corps under Lieutenant General Edmund Allenby, with one cavalry division to the rear of 2nd Corps positions on the canal. In all, there were about 72,000 troops with some 300 guns to hold against Kluck's German 1st Army of 135,000 or so men, and 480 guns now arriving. End quote. With the French on the right of the V and the British on the left, both dug in for the first and most notable joint Allied operation of the war, with the goal of halting the solid right hook that was the crucial element of the Schlieffen Plan. A bulge northwards in the canal is represented by the point in the upside-down V-shape you should still have in your heads, and this would be the point of the heaviest fighting for the BEF, as it neared the largest crossing point available to the Germans across the entire canal. The ensuing battle was a testament to the superior firing skill of the British, who had convinced the Germans that the BEF were both superior in number to them, and mostly consisted of machine gun squads, but it is also a testament to the dogged determination of the Germans, who performed constant attacks against the British positions under devastating fire until their enemy, the British, had been overwhelmed. The French side began to cave in first, as the French felt the impact of a German heavy gun attack to their far right, which knocked out many of their reinforced positions in a few terrible but lucky artillery barrages. As the French began to pull back, Sir John French was informed of the opening the Germans had found in a bridge that had been left undefended to the far left, and ordered General Dorian to plug the gap. But Dorian was too late, and his forces were spread too thinly by this stage to do anything but delay the Germans. Sir John French ordered a mass retreat, as Martin Evans explains, quote, Late that day, the 23rd of August, as it was approaching midnight, Lieutenant Spears informed Sir John French that General Lonrezac had issued orders for his 5th Army to retreat. Clearly, the British position at Mons was no longer tenable. Fortunately, von Bülow had insisted that Kluck made no attempt to outflank the BEF's position by heading further west, and, in spite of having radio communication, 
albeit of a primitive nature, the Germans' ability to reassess the situation and change plans was sufficiently limited to permit a British withdrawal without the added problem of a flank attack. But the British also had the misfortune to have a commander-in-chief who had had his confidence seriously undermined. From a certainty that he and his allies were about to swing forward into Belgium, he had to adjust to the idea of a retreat, a mental change he found difficult to make. A deep distrust of the French commander in general, and Lonrezac in particular, was sown in his mind. At 0100 hours on the 24th of August, Sir John French issued an order to retreat, but gave no precise instructions as to where. Dorian and Haig were left to figure that out for themselves. End quote. By the morning of the 24th of August, it was clear to Joffrey that it was necessary to orchestrate a full-scale retreat back to a defensive line from which the Allies could strike back in a counter-attack. There was to be no repeat of the collapse of 1870. Joffrey ensured that the retreat was organised in Cam, and that the Germans would have to face what Joffrey was preparing as the last stand for Paris, but which stretched nearly the entire length of the country. Maps will be up showing the position of the German armies, the French armies and the BEF, but it is useful to bear in mind that the BEF and the French armies were followed closely by the Germans, as both engaged in rearguard actions to slow the other down. Eventually, on August 26, after the exhausted men on both sides had been given time to rest the day before, the Battle of Coteau was fought by the attacking Germans and half dug in British and French, who were annihilated by repeated artillery strikes and steady German advances through solid forest and uphills. The BEF had barely had any time to dug in, and were outmaneuvered by a numerically superior enemy. Both the British and French had fought in Cateau to delay the German advance and give their further forces time to better prepare, but it had been costly, with the British losing over 8,000 and the French over 3,000 casualties, while the Germans just kept on coming. However, the German tide could not last, and by this time it was already clear that Russia had been severely underestimated by the German general staff. Russian mass armies were advancing into East Prussia, and Malka was pressured to peel units off and send them east to fight in the Second Front. This meant that, in effect, the Schleifen plan had already failed. Germany had not defeated France in the days it had opened to it, at least not yet, and Russia was sending in considerable forces before the 40-day mobilisation programme that the Schleifen plan had expected of them expired. Much was hinging on the available German armies in the West, and their ability to defeat the Anglo-French forces. As Martin Marx Evans explains, it was to be a considerable challenge to the now depleted Germans. Quote, Meanwhile, the German army was extending both its front and its lines of communication, while suffering heavy losses as a result of its defective and expensive tactics in battle. Further, the Germans were facing a determined advance by the Russians in East Prussia, and the two corps besieging Namur were sent to the Eastern Front once their objective had been achieved. More troops were tied up in the siege of Maubeuge and Antwerp. By the 6th of September, the French redeployment and the erosion of the German presence gave the former 41 divisions against the latter's 25. It would take a little time for this differential to become manifest in events on the ground. End quote. Between the days of the 26th of August to the 5th of September, the Anglo-French rivalry at the top of Allied military command heated up. As Sir John French of the BEF and Lonrezac of the 5th French Army butted heads yet again with Sir John apparently willing to jeopardise the entire war for the sake of bitter feelings, 
as he prevented his subordinate, Sir Douglas Haig, from assisting Lonrezac after Haig had already given Lonrezac his word. That battle, the Battle of Guise, saw another familiar tale of Allied fortification and the Germans' overwhelming of those fortifications, all for the sake of buying precious time at the final defensive line. The reasons why these events are so hard to cover is because of the length of the front, and this will become apparent again later on. The Schleifen plan created the idea of an overarching multi-pronged strike into France, which basically meant that, if you can imagine France as a square, four or five large movements of troops ventured from right to left of the map, or at least planned to in a semi-circular motion. This meant that the Germans could focus their strongest attack on the so-called right hook of the outermost movement, but in reality, all it really meant was that a static line was cut diagonally across France on which the Schleifen plan hoped to advance, but which instead was halted by Allied defence, at least for now. The diplomatic front was by no means quiet either. Germany was working on getting Bulgaria and the Ottomans on their side, and signed a secret alliance with Ottoman Turkey in the July of 1914, while the crisis was ongoing. Meanwhile, the Ottomans had reorganised their army along German lines for the sole purpose of cooperating with the Central Powers against Russia who had wished to regain territory lost in the War of 1877, and in the Balkans, which would technically have contradicted the Austrian war aims, but Germany at this stage was engaging in the art of ally-grabbing and had little use for technicalities. Turkey's war minister, Enver Pasha, was planning for making a declaration of war by the time his army had been sufficiently reorganised in mid-1914, in order to regain Ottoman pride and emphasise the strength of the Young Turk Revolution of 1906, which hadn't fared all that well in the Balkan Wars. Turkey's involvement is a crucial one, particularly in 1915 for a certain naval landing which haunted a certain Churchill for the remainder of an otherwise illustrious career. But in 1914 her potential was focused solely on Russia, and on October 3rd 1914 officially joined the Central Powers, sending an army of 100,000 men to the Caucasus a front which only served to draw in more and more troops from the Ottoman and Russian side as the years ground on. The Balkans themselves glistened with apparent strategic possibilities for both camps, as diplomats were sent to Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, and to an extent Albania and Montenegro, as all were informed of the sureness of victory in both cases. So far, only Serbia fought in the Balkans, and its de facto ally Montenegro would follow its collapse in 1915 as it was overrun on all sides. But back to the war. Along the river Oise, which runs almost parallel to Paris, the town of Sinelli was occupied by German troops, now on the very fringes of the French capital. Martin Evans explains the scene with a mind map of his own, as he sets out the newly entrenched front, stretching from Alsace-Lorraine to the outskirts of Paris. Quote, the French 6th Army was covering Paris on the northeast, and the BEF was in contact with it to the southeast. There was then a gap, the bottom of a notional V-shape, before the 5th Army sloping up northeast met the new 9th Army commanded by General Ferdinand Foch. To its right was General de Carré's 4th Army, to the north of them, on the 3rd of September. Malka thought he had his armies in an excellent position, with the German 1st Army covering Paris's northeastern sector and von Bülow's 2nd Army on the Marne. He learned the next day that he was mistaken. South of the Marne, Kluck occupied the centre of the Allies' V-shaped line, with the 2nd French Army only a day's march to his north. This meant that 30 German divisions were in an unstable, almost surrounded formation. They faced the steadily increasing strength of the Allies. 
The BEF had received four fresh brigades from England, and the French armies were getting reinforcements daily. The Allies now had 36 divisions facing the Marne. The long retreat, thanks to Joffrey's steadiness and patience, and thanks also to the endurance of his troops, was about to come to an end. End The 3rd, 4th, 5th and 9th French armies were joined by the BEF and were concentrated heavily around Paris, ready to defend whatever Germany sent towards them. Paris was the surest German target, and so all efforts were exercised to ensure it was defended. France's future was at stake. Dr. Stephen Bull recounts the scene. Quote, According to Joffrey's memoir of the fighting, he decided as early as the 25th of August that the French 1st and 2nd armies would remain in Lorraine, while the centre and left pivoted back on Verdun, with the 3rd, 4th, 5th and 9th armies and the BEF fighting to halt the German advance. Behind the British, a further French army, the 6th, would be assembled to cover Paris and, if possible, move to outflank the enemy. In an extraordinary twist, General Kluck now took an apparent opportunity to strike to the left of the French army, but this led to his army wheeling south short of Paris rather than encircling it as had been intended. On the 2nd of September, orders from Malka confirmed this direction, envisioning that the main body of the French armies would be cut off from Paris. By the 5th of September, the battle had been joined along a frontage of over 100 miles. That day, Joffrey issued his injunction that Every effort must be made to drive back the enemy. A soldier who can no longer advance must guard the territory held, no matter what the cost. He must be killed in his tracks rather than fall back. End quote. By changing their direction, from straight ahead to veering down south, Cluck believed he was in line for a huge tactical victory, but in reality, he left his right flank open to the Allies. In particular, the French 6th Army were in a prime position to counter-attack. Joffrey noticed this German tactical error, which he duly exploited, ordering the French 5th and 6th armies on both sides to attack with BEF support. And in response to this, Kluck had to organise the weakening of the German 1st Army's strength in the south, so that he could reinforce the pressurised right flank. But this would not stop the French advance on the right, and the 6th of September ended with the French still in place, despite the German redeployment, as Malka realised the mistake Kluck had made at such a critical time. Move them back, he ordered Cluck. You are throwing our men away. But Malka's orders were fruitless at this stage. Even as German forces advanced further down the line, Cluck's first army position had been breached and he feared for its total destruction. The French soldiers kept pouring into the new gap left by the deficiency of the German soldiers that had been pulled up from the south, and the south and east were now compromised flanks of a thoroughly assailed German army. Just as this was unfolding on the 7th of September, German forces fell for a trap that had been laid for them in Alsace-Lorraine and retreated with heavy losses, further weakening the far end of the German front. Upon coming to the realisation that Germany did not at the moment possess the resources to reclaim the initiative, Malka ordered a general halting of the advance on September 9th and a withdrawal of the German armies themselves back to a defensive line, a situation covered by Dr. Stephen Bull. Quote, On the 9th of September, attacks were called off, and Malka ordered a general retreat. Wilhelm II blamed Malka for the disaster. Military genius was conspicuously absent. The battle was conducted in a wholly mechanical and conventional manner. The resultant trench warfare was the natural outcome of an exhaustion brought about by a failure on both sides to develop a decisive strategy. The Battle of the Marne was followed by the so-called Race to the Sea, which was, actually, 
as Joffrey observed, a series of attempts by the German and Allied armies to outflank each other to the north until they came right up against the coast. With the Germans in possession of Ostend, dry land eventually ran out. The war had nowhere to go. End quote. With the retreat back to the more defensible position came the German admission of the failure of their forces to carry out the Schleifen plan. The Battle of the Marne was perhaps the most important battle of World War I, as it not only prevented France's destruction, thus prolonging the war, but it also gave time for France's continental ally Russia to properly make its presence felt, and establish the trenches as the new staple form of warfare for a now solidly entrenched Western Front. The resulting German-occupied territory held 64% of France's pig iron production, 24% of its steel manufacturing, and 40% of the total coal mining capacity, dealing a serious but not crippling setback to French industry. Far more serious was the fact that Germany now really would have to fight a two-front war, as Malka's mistakes now became apparent, and Malka was replaced by von Falkenhayn as commander-in-chief. As the static nature of warfare in France was bitterly established, in the east, Austro-German forces achieved stunning victories against the thoroughly outmatched Russian armies. In the Balkans, Austro-Hungarian forces briefly occupied Belgrade before being forced out by the end of 1914. 1915 would be a tragic year for Serbian nationalism, but 1914 was the year of Serbian national pride, honour and resistance. Serbia's ally Russia, though, was completely bamboozled, following the Battle of Tannenberg over August 23-30, in which a Russian army of 460,000 men was destroyed by an Austro-German force of just a quarter of that number. The German contingent was led by the generals Ludendorff and Hindenburg, who will soon dominate the entire World War I narrative, and I cannot wait to get sick of saying their names. All across the fronts, from Asia, where Germany lost practically all her possessions, to the Russian front, where the Austro-German force was making steady gains, to the Balkans, where Serbia was hanging on, to Flanders, where trenches had been established, the world was at war, and it would not be over by Christmas. The First Battle of Ypres was still to come in 1914, as were the additional battles in the Balkans and Eastern Front. The horrors of war, the waste of human life, the endless artillery barrages that drove men to mental breakdowns, all were symptoms of a world ill with the disease of world war, a disease which would drag on for another four more years before any cure could be found. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed getting to the halfway point of our narrative, because pretty soon we'll be covering the big battles, the Somme and Verdun, and we'll be looking at revolution at home, and a certain power across the Atlantic, so stay tuned for that. Once again I apologise for my erratic schedule, but I will always be sure to let you know when and what is coming out. One last thanks goes out to Rosa for her donation. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks! Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.